say yes to things that feel uncomfortable and travel, get out there, even if it's just going to a different city or getting a different perspective, making yourself a little bit more uncomfortable than what you're used to. Welcome to From the Dorm Room to the Boardroom, a podcast where we provide insights, tips, and inspiration for college students and young professionals so they can make a really successful transition from college life to the professional world and beyond. My name is Andy Malinsky, and I'm your host. I'm also a professor of organizational behavior and international management at Brandeis University's International Business School, where we record and produce this podcast. So today's guest is Kalsum Lakani, who is the founder and CEO of Invest to Innovate, which aims to support and unleash the potential of young entrepreneurs in growth markets like Pakistan. She's also a partner at I2I Ventures, uh, Invest to Innovate's early stage investment fund for Pakistan and the country's first female founded institutional fund. Uh, she's trained young entrepreneurs and change makers uh, in Kosovo, uh, Nepal, Cambodia, Ireland, Bangladesh, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan. She's spoken in numerous places, has been recognized in numerous ways. And I really actually just want to get to talk to you. Kalsum. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So tell us a bit about, about what you do now. Uh, primarily, I guess, Invest Innovate. Tell us w- sure. what that is, what it does, and then we'll kind of rewind and hear about how you got from, from the college to this point. Sure. Yeah. So I actually wear two hats within Invest to Innovate now. Uh, so I'm the founder and CEO of Invest to Innovate or I2I, uh, which I founded back in 2011. So about eight years ago to support startups and founders in, in frontier markets. So places where it's really difficult to be an entrepreneur are the places that we want to work. Uh, I grew up in Pakistan despite my very American accent. So for me, when I started I2I, the place that I wanted to start with was uh, my home country of Pakistan. And we started there eight years ago. We launched the country's first uh, startup accelerator program. So a, a program supporting entrepreneurs um, have since gone on to you know work with local investors. We started a research arm. And then most recently, which is now my second hat, I recently founded with my partner, Eye to Eye Ventures, which is our new investment fund. Uh, mainly because we just saw... We've been working with startups for 8 years in the country. We now work in the region as well. And just know that uh, investment capital and early stage money is really hard for founders to get. So we wanted to provide a better solution uh, that's out there. So we just officially announced our investment fund last week with our first investment. Oh, exciting. So. Yeah. So 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 you said so I want to hear about college but but first just quickly you said you you grew up in Pakistan but despite your very american accent there's yeah. a story be, there's a story behind that <laughs> Oh there's always a story uh, yeah so I actually am what I, I'm sure there are people like this uh Brandeis, we there's a term called third culture kid and basically I am a TCK which is which means that I was Born in Dubai, my mom is from Bangladesh. My dad is from Pakistan. I was I lived in Bangladesh for elementary school and Pakistan for middle and high school. I went to international schools overseas, uh, which explains the American accent. It's kind of like going to a little America in the schools that you go to, and you have students from all over the world uh, when you when you go to when you go to school. And so, third culture kid is a reference to kids that have kind of grown up everywhere and and really can 
are belong everywhere and also belong nowhere, if that makes sense. So our identities are a little bit hard to pin down because people hear me and they assume that I grew up in the US, but actually I'm, I've grown up very internationally. And so you went to high school in an international high school in Pakistan or was it in Bangladesh? Uh, I went to the American school in Bangladesh for elementary school. And then I moved to Pakistan in the sixth grade and went to the American school there in Islamabad, um, the international school of Islamabad. Shout out to ISOI. <laughs> cool. So so, 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 and then you were looking for, for college. And I imagine from there, you could have gone to lots of different places, right? Lots yeah. of different countries, lots of different regions of the world. Yeah. Where did you land? Where did you study? Where did you go to college? Yeah, because I went to the American school, um, there, you know, we obviously had beyond American curriculum, our teachers were American, my counselor was American. So a lot of students that graduate from the American school end up going to the US or the UK, but mainly the US for university. So I uh, ended up, you know, I knew that I was going to go to the US for university. It was really important to my parents that that happened. I was very studious. Uh, My nickname growing up was Lisa Simpson (laughs) because I was very like, focused and, and ambitious and even as a kid. And so I, I think I applied to eight schools. My first choice being Northwestern. Um, I got in, but my dad didn't want me to go to film school. So I ended up... Uh, I had a family friend that went to the University of Virginia. And I think I went to... I was in spring break in, in Bangladesh, which is where my mom is from. And this family friend uh, literally showed me the yearbook Quirks and Curls at UVA. And I think that was the moment. I visited UVA over one of the summers, but that was the moment that I made the decision to go there. And I, that's where I went for four years, uh, my four years at university. And what did you major in? I actually majored in... So I, it's really funny because I really thought like as a kid, I was like, you know, in high school, I was like, I'm going to go to film school. Like I'm obsessed with film. Like this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, which is hilarious thinking back on my 17-year-old self. And my dad, that was the reason my dad didn't want me to go to Northwestern. He actually said to me, he was like, uh, if you still want to do this after undergraduate, then I will support whatever you want to do. So going to UVA, I thought, you know, I'm going to do like something creative. And then my very first class I took at UVA was a comparative politics 101 class. And I was sold from that moment. I was a foreign affairs major, uh, did a double major in foreign affairs and Middle East studies. And basically every single class I could eat, breathe and sleep was in the foreign policy of politics space, which is what I thought I was going to go into after, after college. So that's interesting. So you, so you, so you majored in uh, foreign affairs, and you know you graduated college. And what wh- what came next? What was your first job, and and what was the experience like trying to sort of find that first job? Yeah. So actually, I didn't work right out of college. I so I was an international student when I went to UVA. Your options are very limited when you're on a student visa. Of you know you have to get your your OBT or work permit to work for a year and then ideally get sponsored. So I had a professor at uh, EVA that actually was like, well, why don't you, if you feel like you really want to do foreign policy, why not apply for graduate schools? And so I got into uh, George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs straight out of undergrad. So I went directly from undergrad to graduate school. Not something that I would actually recommend to undergrads. I actually wish I had taken off some time to like figure out if it's what I wanted to do. Um, and so I almost felt like I was in an accelerated bachelor's program because I just continued studying after undergrad. Uh, but then after my master's degree, 
I actually worked with the good thing about the Elliott School was that it was a very professional program. So classes were in the evening, which meant they encouraged you to work during the day. So I ended up uh, interning for a number of different places in DC, which is Washington is a great place if you do politics, obviously. And so, which is why most people move here. And so I ended up interning at a bunch of different places. Um, my last semester of, you know, I started to do conflict resolution, which is what um, I started to focus on in graduate school and doing a lot of work on counterterrorism because this was conflict resolution in the era of, I'm really, I'm going to age myself, but it was 2004, 2006. So it was like right during the middle of the Iraq war and the war in Afghanistan. And so conflict resolution was really synonymous with counterterrorism at the time. And so I ended up getting hired by a defense contracting firm after, after graduate school and then going straight into being an analyst uh, right afterwards, which is really funny when I first talked about what I do now and how far, <laughs> how far I've, I've gone from that. It's, it's it's an interesting uh, point that that it's it's funny how far you uh, got from that because I hear that in a lot of people's stories that in some ways the starting point it's not I wouldn't say it's irrelevant but that it off that that where you ultimately end up diverges often pretty far from where you started. Definitely, I mean, I have a cousin that just graduated um, from college uh, just this. This um, this spring, and she was talking to me about you know she'd already made decisions about like what she wanted to do with her life, and I I said to her I said listen you will not and I was like it's great if you do now and you stick to it and that's awesome but I was like you know for me at least my one biggest lesson was that your path is not linear and I think I was someone who really again as I mentioned my nickname was Lisa Simpson and so I really thought like I was someone that knew exactly what I was going to do when I graduated from college. I went straight to graduate school for that very reason. I moved to DC for that reason. I thought like, you know, my my world is going to be in the foreign policy space. That's how I'm going to make an impact and that's how I'm going to move. Uh, I think my one biggest guiding thing that's kind of gone, my biggest thread through everything is that I want to move things. I wanted to make an impact. And I think that's a lot of young people. And so I really thought I could do that, especially as a young uh, Pakistani, as a young a Muslim American, or now a Muslim American, in the age of like the Iraq War and things like that. I just thought I had a responsibility and I had a lens and a perspective that I thought was important. And so I think at the time, I was just so focused and that's what I was going to do. And the minute I started to listen to myself a little bit, like that little voice in your head that says that maybe this isn't the right path for you, that's when it started to take me in a different route. So tell us about your path. You said it wasn't linear. How much... How- I mean, we we'll hear the 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 sort of form it took, but um, I'm curious what you what you did next. It sounds like you landed at the defense contractor as an analyst, and then then not just what next, but but what was going inside your head? How did you sort yeah. of navigate the path? Yeah, I mean, you know, you're really bright eyed, bushy tailed, or at least I was when I came out of graduate school. I thought, you know, this is the best thing I should be doing right now. I was advising, uh, mainly advising the US Army in Iraq. I was doing a lot of um, counter suicide bombing, uh, uh, you know, counter suicide bombing messaging. Um, I was working in a strategic communications firm ultimately, um, but I was doing a lot of like, you know, propaganda analysis. I was uh, advising the US military on, you know, this is what the news is saying, this is how you should respond. So I really thought that that was my avenue for that. And then I, I was in a very toxically male environment, to be honest. I was in a lot of like hoorah, like literally was heard around the office at all times. It was majority like men. 
Um, I was definitely the uh, the one of the youngest and one of the only women analysts in my division in a really small company. And I was sent out to Afghanistan, and it was just you know it just wasn't something that I started to feel heard or seen for what I was and what I knew I could bring to the table. And you know it, maybe it was just the company that I was at at the time, but I, I think for me the biggest the biggest moments that I've uh, was that I've I've moved away from that path has been because I'm the daughter of a serial entrepreneur and my dad is an amazing, amazing business mind. And one thing that I've always learned from him is that, you know, if you have an idea, just just go for it. Just follow it. And I remember being really unhappy at my job and I was I was stuck there because of my visa situation and I didn't want to leave the country. And so I remember one day Pakistan was on was on the cover of Timer Newsweek in 2000. I think it was 2007 uh, for being the most dangerous place on earth. And I remember just feeling so incensed by the injustice of that title because it was not something that encompassed all the nuances of what I knew of my home country. And I remember this moment very vividly. I was you know, really unhappy at work, um, but I was, I was sitting in the back of a car with my dad. And I actually said to him, I said, I can't believe that this is, you know, this is the cover. This is this is bullshit. And my dad said, well, what are you going to do about it? And that's actually my dad in a, in a nutshell. He always asked me that. He's like, well, what are you going to do about it? And so I decided while I was working, I ended up starting a current affairs blog on Pakistan called Jup uh, or Changing Up Pakistan. But Jup in Urdu or Hindi also means shush. Um, and it actually started to become my avenue for creation and creativity. And I wrote it by night. So I was working during the day like crazy hours. But Every night I was writing till three, four in the morning and I was doing an analysis of what was happening in the news in Pakistan. I was covering filmmakers and artists and all the voices you weren't hearing about in the news and realizing that it started to become this platform that then other people wanted me to write for them. I was speaking on like, you know, for the BBC and for a number of other outlets. This is when blogging was, you know, hitting this big trend. And just kind of that moment of realizing like, oh wow, saying yes to something that was uncomfortable and saying yes to what are you going to do about it and doing something created this avenue that I didn't realize that I had a voice that people wanted to listen to or that there was so much outside of my periphery and so much outside of... you know I was like a horse with blinders on. like So much that was out there of like creatives and artists. And it was almost tapping back into 17-year-old Kulsum who... You know, was this wannabe filmmaker or wannabe like a uh, film critic at the time, and and remembering that there was so much more out there, and so for me that was kind of what started the path into the entrepreneurship space. To be honest, I, I switched into a different day job. I moved into the venture philanthropy space, and that's really where the inspiration behind Eye to Eye came. But it really. So much of it was me just saying yes, and then just asking a lot of questions while I was, you know, you're writing, you're writing a blog, you're doing a ton of, you're asking a ton of questions, you're listening a lot, and as you're listening, you're getting inspired. Yeah, that was that was really what started to lead me down this path. What ultimately caused you to? I mean, did you did you you left that firm and you said you changed your day job? Was that sort of because that you you needed that to make ends meet and you were doing the other yeah. stuff as sort of a side hustle? Is that what it was? Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that I was really lucky at the time that I got an out of to be able to move into a different space. Um, and yes, I definitely, you know, blogging was not something that was paying the bills. It wouldn't keep my lights on. But then while I was in, you know, the venture philanthropy space, which is ultimately like a really fancy word for 
kind of trying to take a different take on philanthropy and how philanthropy can provide support to social enterprise and to like high risk, no return capital that's really necessary for early stage companies and and really diving kind of head first. This was 10 years ago into the social impact space and just going to... And I, I am kind of like a horse with blinders on when I'm learning something new. So I went to every imaginable conference. I was t- meeting up taking people for coffee just to understand what they did. Um, and as I was doing that, that's when I really started to realize that there was like this hidden opportunity that no one was talking about. Like no one was... Everyone was talking about the same countries that they were putting money into. Everyone at the time was talking about India, Brazil, Mexico, East Africa. And actually that continues to be the case right now. And no one was talking about countries like Pakistan or Nigeria or Vietnam and places that were the potential was as high where there was so many young people and so many challenges to address, but no one was working there because it was too high risk and too hard to navigate. And so, you know, back to my dad's uh, question is, what are you going to do about it? And I made the decision, you know, in 2011 then to start eye to eye because I really saw that potential um, at the time, but it, it really came from while I was working in this, this new, you know, this new field of just like, asking so many questions and really listening and kind of being like this kid in a candy store of just like, oh, I want to learn everything about this space. And that was really the attitude and the perspective I came in with it. Um, with. So, you, so you've told us a really interesting story about your career journey. From, from where you stand now, what, what misconceptions do you think college students have about sort of entering the workforce, building a career? Yeah. I mean, I think that you know it kind of speaks to what a lot of things that I've already said was that I think that you know you feel like you have to know ha- you have to have all the answers when you're graduating and I feel um, at least I thought I did and I felt like that was kind of what was being told to me maybe just society I felt that way like I need to know what I need to do I need to uh, I need to know where I'm going with my life and I think that's kind of the biggest lie and the biggest myth that someone can say to you like I think it's great to have an idea and to have passions but I think we are dynamic as humans Right, so we are ever changing, and the world is ever changing around us. So I think my biggest, my that's the biggest myth, and I think my biggest response to that is to like say yes to things that feel uncomfortable and travel, get out there, um, even if it's just going to a different city or getting a different perspective, making yourself a little bit more uncomfortable than what you're used to, um, because I think you always find inspiration um, and potential for creativity in those in those moments and in those moments of discomfort. And that that to me was like, you know, the big thing of of, you know, when when you're coming out of college, you're told this very top down, like almost like parochial, like this is what you have to do. And and I think that's that's not true. Were there speaking of college, were you majored in foreign affairs. I know you went to graduate school right afterwards, and I know you were passionate about film um, in high school, and perhaps that carried through as a latent, maybe a latent interest. Were, were there any actual skills, anything you learned in college, or frankly in graduate school, that yeah. ended up being like super useful for what you do now, or or not, or maybe even something unexpected? Yeah, um, you know it's interesting. So my joke has always been that I have a master's in conflict resolution, and it. I don't actually manage or mitigate any conflicts in the world. It's always like family or like situations. And it, that actually was like a really great life skill. Like I've, I've always been a very big diplomat, but learning negotiation, learning um, how to 
you know, bring parties together is when you're working and operating in a market like Pakistan and we work in Bangladesh. I've worked in like, obviously I've, I've traveled around the world and, and worked in really different places. You learn what it means to bring people together and to uh, listen and and to to think about like, you know, what is it that everyone is saying that is a common thread and how do we, how do we bring people together in that way so that we have common ground. And that you know, even though conflict resolution and when I was thinking about it was not, this is not what I was going to use it for. It has come into so many situations, especially in Pakistan, where on a regular basis, I am coming up against something and I have to figure out a way around stuff. And so that to me is one. The second thing generally with your college education, especially with the liberal arts education, is it teaches you critical thinking. And I think that, you know, I grew up in a country like Pakistan. I had the privilege of going to one of the best schools and, and having an American style education. Education in most of our countries and in, in the in emerging markets is not like that. It's very much rote memorization. It's you know top down. And so to go to a U.S. university and to have the freedom to kind of explore and to try different things and to think critically about things and to question things is one of the best life lessons and the best type of skills that I brought into my work because I think that kind of puts you into what I call a growth mindset um, versus a fixed mindset. So a fixed mindset are people that don't ever challenge anything and are okay with the status quo, maybe are the status quo. Growth mindset is you're constantly thinking and questioning and curious about things. And I think college really gave me that. Um, and I would say the last thing is, you know, I was an analyst. That skill actually is we built an entire research arm of our company. I can do our we can do our own research. I mean, I can do my own research. Like right now I have to work on something, a big project that we're doing with a big client in Pakistan. And I have the ability, I don't just I do I do hire out for it and we have an amazing research team, but I also, as the founder of the company, I have that skill set to be able to analyze things and think critically about things. So I've definitely used things, just maybe not in the traditional sense of how I thought it was originally going to be applied. So so this has been really interesting. It sounds like your your career has taken a very interesting turn. And and I'd I'd be curious one last question is um is about mentorship. You talked a bit about your dad and in that sort of question that rings in my head as I'm thinking about it, you know, what are you going to do about it? I love that. Tell us about the role of mentors in your in in your career so far. And and I'd actually be curious about both Directions, pe- people you've had as mentors, and also any mentoring you've done, and you know the importance or lack of importance, or any tips or insights about that. Yeah, um, I think mentors are so pivotal for you. Um, I think it's also sometimes an overused term, and so a lot of times, you know, someone will claim someone as a mentor, and it's it's an interesting thing of like who makes the mentor, or what does that relationship look like, and it's something that I think is often has to be defined by both parties or multiple parties. Um, so I definitely, when I started eye to eye, you know, obviously I grew up with you know the best type of business school you can go to is being the daughter of an entrepreneur, right? Because around the dinner table, I was hearing stories about failure. And and not just success. Actually, my dad would talk about how he lost, you know, made his first million before he was thirty, and then lost all of it when we were when we were little. And and how what my my mom had to teach exercise classes to keep the lights on, and just all of these stories of you know the type of risk appetite that my father had um, was the type, best type of business school a kid could go to. But and he continues to be like one of my one of my favorite founding boards and and someone who I really feel is 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 a big cheerleader of mine as is my mom. But you know, mentoring when I started eye to eye, I really knew very much from the get-go that I really needed people to to 
to support me, to advise me, to tell me what I didn't want to hear. And I think that's what's really important is you don't want to have an echo chamber around you. You don't want people telling you how amazing you are. You want people that are going to challenge you and be critical of you in a constructive way. And so with Eye to Eye, when I started, there were people that I really looked up to in the space and people that had built companies and where I saw um, you know, the growth of where I wanted to take the company. And so those were people that I literally just would cold call or message, Twitter DM, I would slide into their DMs and be asked to take them for coffee. And some of those people are still on my board of advisors today. Uh, There's still people who cheerlead even if I don't see them on a regular basis. And what I think has been really amazing is just, uh, you know, as an example of one of my mentors, of someone who I love so dearly. Um, he is someone that um, I think I launched eye to eye three months before I was at a conference. And you know, you have this like, and I say this for people that start businesses, you have this like almost arrogant assumption that you're building something that everybody loves and wants. I think there is a quality of narcissism available in every, it's like evident in every entrepreneur in some way. And so I remember, you know, really confidently telling this. You know, guy at a conference about this company that I was starting, and he literally tore it apart. Like he just tore, like it was like I had I don't cry really easily, and I had I was like my eyes were stinging because I was like I'm gonna cry. Like this is everything he's like ripped it apart. But after I took a minute and I like went back and kind of licked my wounds a little bit, I was like, wow, that is the most valuable you know feedback that I've gotten. No one else has said that to me. And so I remember seeing him literally a year later at another conference. And he still to this day has no recollection of doing this to me. And he was like, Hey, like really happy to see me. And I just said to him, I said, um, I said, I just want you to know that a year ago, you gave me some of the harshest feedback that I've ever had. And it was the best feedback I've ever gotten. And I've applied this and this and this to my business. And will you be on my board of advisors? And he's he's been on my board for the last 8 years since I started the company. And so that's really great examples. And then when your question about mentoring down, so mentoring up is, you know, obviously like I look for mentors. I've obviously I work with startups, so I, I mentor on it's part of my job, it's part of what I do. I've had so many founders that have come through our program as well as people that I continue uh, to work with in, in our network. And for me, that's the most fun thing. Like I nothing gets me more excited than someone that wants to meet up for coffee and get feedback on their idea. And for people that I have a sustained relationship with, I get really invested. And actually what's really cool is that one of our our first investment that we announced with iDi Ventures last week is a company that was part of our accelerator program two years ago. And they're one some of my favorite founders. They're a husband and wife duo. Um, they're created an on-demand platform for temporary house help. So on-demand cleaners and cooks and nannies in Pakistan. And I continue to have like this amazing relationship with them. And that really served us so well in our first, you know, our investment negotiation process because the minute things felt a little bit salty, they called me up and were like, we just want to have a conversation with you because we trust you. And I think that's really the fundamental foundation of a good mentoring relationship. And then the last thing I'll say about mentoring is one thing to not, you know, take for granted is the idea of peer mentors and people who are around you who are the same age and the same level as you and how important that's been for me. I, I was I've been a big part of a community called Sandbox, which is a community and network of people doing innovative things under 30. I'm no longer under 30, but I used to run the DC community and that was so pivotal for me in helping to build eye to eye and I since you know, had a board of a personal board of advisors of friends from that community. I now have like a new masterminds group of friends that work in the same space as me, um, who I'm actually seeing in Vancouver tomorrow. 
for you know, like our annual summit. And we just, it's just so amazing to have people that you truly, truly respect at, at your peer level and can give you the feedback um, that you need to hear. And sometimes you don't want to hear. Wow. Uh, excellent advice. Uh, I, I imagine that anyone listening to this is going to uh, just come away with so many great nuggets and inspiration from your story. I really, really thanks so much for coming on. And, and if anyone wants to learn about you, know, you about your organization, about what you do, where, where, where can they go? Sure. Um, so you can, you, know, you can go to our website, uh, www.investtoinnovate.com. Or you can, uh, I guess, you can you know, reach out on Twitter, um, closely too. Um, but yeah, you can find out more about us on our website or on Facebook. Cool. Thanks again. This was great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to From the Dorm Room to the Boardroom. If you're interested in learning more about the work that I do and helping people step outside their comfort zones and transition successfully into the professional world, please visit my website, www.andymolinsky.com. That's A-N-D-Y-M-O-L-I-N-S-K-Y.com. And also feel free to email me directly at Andy at andymolinsky.com with any feedback or ideas for guests for future podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by Brandeis University's International Business School. By teaching rigorous business, finance, and economics, connecting students to best practices, and immersing them in international experiences, Brandeis International Business School prepares exceptional individuals from around the globe to become principled professionals in companies and public institutions worldwide. Thank you so much for listening.